Welcome back, everyone, to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, uh, joined as always by my two CFP co-hosts, Mr. Mike Long and Adam Shear. How are you guys doing? Woo, 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 woo. Hanging in there, Jerry. We're, I'm hanging in I there. I like how you gave like the par- the party horn noises, and then you're like, hanging in there. <laughs> what else do I have to do all day? But oh, <laughs> uh, yep. That's that's how I feel. A lot of people are uh, feeling right now. The stress is starting to build for the exam. So nice to just kind of take a load off and make sure you're you know taking those breaks, everyone. Uh, we have a little later in this episode, a great discussion. Uh, Mike, you sat down with, uh, Brendan and a former student of ours, uh, Robin to talk about, you know, what it's like being a financial advisor and the challenges people can expect once they, you know, start practicing full time. Um, so we're going to dive into that a little bit later, but right now I just wanted to get some uh, question of the episode in for our September students so they can get a, just a little bit more practice before uh, they head off to the September CFP exam. Let's do it. Yeah, okay. Good idea. Awesome. So I have a, a little theme uh, for the question of the episode this this time, guys. Uh, we got a threefer. Uh, we got three questions of the episode. All of them are really quick and all kind of follow the same theme. You know, how many times have we said it, Adam, that, you know, the CFP exam isn't a memorization exam. It's a, uh, uh, a always comprehension we said that exam. in our jam sessions uh, just a few weeks back <laughs> uh, and on many phone calls. And it's it's true. It's true. You can get a lot of points uh, just from from reading slowly and carefully and and knowing those those key terms and key concepts in the question stem. Exactly. And while that's mostly true, 99% of the time, that's not to say that there's no memorization with the CFB exam. There are still key concepts and figures and numbers that you are going to want to uh, remember in order to get those maximum points and those free points where you can find them on the exam. So I picked uh, three questions today, guys, that just kind of represent the questions that actually are memorization questions that people seem to look for. Yeah, and that's um, if 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 you're not already uh, start immediately having your tax tables uh, and investment formulas handy when you're studying, so you can continually look at the things that are provided. Yeah, I can't believe how many students don't look at the tax tables before the exam because there's so much information on there. And I've had students tell me it's like, oh, yeah, I, I memorized all of the, uh, you know, IRA contribution limits and tax tax. And it's like, yeah, those things are good to have. But those are all provided. So you're kind of wasting, you know, memory bank space working on memorizing this information that you don't actually need to memorize. Absolutely. And you, and the since the CFP exam is so broad in its scope, you you need that extra memory bank to store some of these these points. I mean, really, what we'll cover today in these questions are going to translate to points for you, and they're they're very easy to uh, to memorize. Yep. So with that, let's dive into the first one. So, assume that an eight percent money purchase plan is to be integrated with Social Security. What is the plan's maximum permitted disparity? A, 4.3%, B, 7.65%, C, 5.7%, 
or D, 13.7%? What do you guys think? Ooh, 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 it's retirement. Call on me. Call on me. <laughs> Mike's favorite subject. Call on me. <laughs> <laughs> what you got, Mike? Okay, so uh, tell, tell me again, we're looking for the maximum disparity or the total contribution? I think you said disparity. What, yeah, what is the plan's maximum permitted disparity? Okay, so um, quick background. Social Security inherently discriminates against higher income um workers in the replacement formula for social security retirement. So uh, qualified plan uh, law allows there to be some discrepancy, disparity between contribution levels for uh, non-highly compensated employees and then higher compensated employees. So we can we would have two contribution levels. The first contribution level in, in this example would be 8% up to the Social Security taxable um, wage base. And that this year is, what what is it, 137.9, I think. Um, and so all participants would get 8% contribution up to that level. And then any workers who have compensation above that level up to the covered compensation limit for the year would get an additional contribution. And that, that top-end contribution would be the lesser of two times the base rate percentage or the base rate percentage plus 5.7%. So we do the math, two times the base contribution would be 16%. The second piece is 8% plus 5.7 or a total of 13 uh, 0.7%. So those would be the two levels of contribution and our maximum permitted disparity there comes out to be the 5.7%. Right. Now, I'm sure a bunch of our listeners, Mike, as beautifully as you just explained it, Social Security integration is one of those topics that just makes students head spin. Um, it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around. And that's okay. The key to drive home with this question is that the base is 5.7%. Um, you know, with this uh, question, all we know is it's an 8% money purchase plan. Uh, we don't know the base contribution or excess contribution uh, percentages. And because it just doesn't give us any of that information, we, we just default to the base of 5.7%. So even if you have no idea what Mike just said with his beautiful explanation of Social Security integration, if you can just remember 5.7% Social Security integration, that can get you some free points on the exam. That's a good tip. Yep, 57 Memorize that one. If you, yeah, so just in your mind, associate Social Security integration, 5.7%. And I actually had a question exactly like this on my exam uh, when I took it. And, you know, I could do all the calculations and all that. But just looking at the numbers, I realized that 5.7 was the only real option that it could be just because of the way the percentages line up. And more often than not, I feel with the CFP exam questions, they just go for that you know, they want to see if you know what the minimum is rather than can you actually do this calculation? Because the calculation itself, if you know how to do it, isn't that difficult. Right. Uh, really, they just want to test on, do you know that the minimum is 5.7? Yeah, that's a, that's a good tip. And I, too, had that same question. Uh, and I had just written down over and over and over in my notes, 
lesser of two times the base or the base plus 5.7. I mean, I literally wrote that like like the Simpsons on the <laughs> on the chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's probably a better thing to internalize. That gives you a little bit better. Two times the base yeah, or five point seven. Make make that make that your <laughs> mantra. <laughs> All right, we got a rule of thumb question up next. Uh, Adam, you want to take this one? Yeah, let's do it. All right, the independent rule of thumb for pity p i t i indicates that it should generally not exceed a twenty percent of net income. B, 28% of net income, C, 28% of gross income, or D, 36% of gross income. This is as straight memorization as it gets. <laughs> what do you think, Adam? It surely is. And uh, I know this one. I know this one well. And uh, I, I pity the uh, the CFP candidate uh, that doesn't go into the uh, question. Uh, <laughs> pity the fool. The fool. <laughs> um, <laughs> 28, 28% of, of gross is, is my answer uh, for, for PITI, which is uh, principal and interest taxes and insurance as they relate to uh, having a mortgage. Uh, this is one of those, yep. those qualification ratios. Uh, what's nice about, about the options that you, you presented there, Jerry, are that you also have the other key, uh, the other key ratio right in the mortgage space that you need to know as well, which is that 36% um, when we also account for non-housing debt. Uh, so it's kind of all in. It's PITI mm -hmm. uh, plus that non-housing debt. So uh, those two stand alone. I mean, what what paths could, could we see, guys, uh, in terms of, of how that could be questioned on the exam? Yeah, I mean, this is tricky because not only do you have to memorize the percentage of 28%, you also have to memorize that it's gross and not net income. That's another key part Correct. of it. And then as an extra twist, like you said, Adam, they threw in this 36%, hoping that you'll, in the back of your mind, remember, oh, yeah, 36%. I remember that was something with Biddy and choosing that one, even though that is uh, for, like you said, other debt or uh, obligations. So, yeah, That's I mean, right. I mean, honestly, this is such an important rule of thumb for financial planning. And if you this, I feel, is a question that people who are already financially planning, this will be a slam dunk for them because it's probably something they use in their practice every day anyways. Um, but really just like really just focus on that rule of thumb. Know why that percentage is what it is, um, you know, know why it's important and that'll just help you kind of lock up these types of questions. Well, I was just going to comment on the 28% uh, uh, gross. And I think, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the reason it's on gross is because um, folks are going to be able to take a deduction for mortgage interest um, in their itemized deductions. Um, so we can base it on the higher amount, the gross uh, amount. Of course, with levels being what they are for standard deduction, that might not always be the case now, but I think that's the theory behind running this off of gross income. And now the where this becomes a little tricky is because it, in your CFP course and your studies, uh, you're, you're likely to see a bunch of different key ratios or rule of thumb ratios. And the, the one that we haven't mentioned, but was one of our answer options, was 20% of net income. And 
That is also one of our key debt ratios. That's our consumer debt ratio. Another really great one to know. And uh, that is net. So 20% of net income. And we're just looking at non-housing consumer debt. Uh, that's going to be another one of your rule of thumb ratios. There is, and I will, I will shamelessly plug our special sessions where, where Jerry, myself, and Mike uh, created the JAM team. And uh, in session number five, we covered mortgage ratios and some other rules of thumb. So if, if you have the chance to look at that, we put together a nice table for you where actually these three ratios that we're in that we just discussed uh, are all going to be covered. So that could be a nice flashcard for you as you get ready for the exam. Yeah, and the the twenty uh, percent again illustrates what I was just saying um, of net income, and the rationale there is because consumer debt interest is not deductible. So we have to work off of a lower number for just that component. Uh, speaking of flashcards, our next question is just a straight up flashcard answer. Um, if you don't have a flashcard for this, I would highly recommend that you make one. But uh, for how many days does the COBRA election period last? A, 30 days after termination. B, 30 days after the notice of the event, which qualifies the beneficiary. C, 60 days after termination. Or D, 60 days after the actual notice of the event to the qualified beneficiary by the plan administrator. So this is a this is another just pure memorization question. Do you know how many days you have to elect COBRA? What do you guys think? I'm going to go with 60 days of the notice. That is correct, Mike. So big one is, first of all, it's 60 days. So you need to memorize 60 days for COBRA election. And then it's not 60 days from the day you were fired. It's 60 days from the day you were told that you were fired. So if you got fired on Tuesday and you still showed up to work until Friday and your boss forgot to let you know, your 60 days start on Friday, not Tuesday. I, I think there's a Seinfeld episode on that. Where, where George walks out and he comes well, back. Uh, Is that Costanza over there? <laughs> well, then there's also a uh, office space where, uh, where what was it, Melvin? He was fired like five Excuse years me. ago, but there was a, a mistake in payroll, and he still kept getting a paycheck, yes, so he kept yes, coming me. to work. Excuse me, I, I believe he had no mistake. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's happening? Um, <laughs> so I actually had an RTFQ moment with this question because um, I immediately mm. went into 18 or 36 months. It's like, well, what's this? And I didn't catch the first time I read it that this is just about the election period. It's not about the benefit yeah, period. Right. Not how long does COBRA last? How long do you have to actually take yeah, advantage of COBRA? I thought that was a good one. Uh, and um, with COBRA, they're, they're, we can make several flashcards that are completely numbers-based with COBRA. And I think that that's where the points are to be had. So, yes. Mike, you were talking about 18 months, 36 months. Uh, that was maximum continuing uh, continuation coverage with COBRA, Yes, uh-huh. And they could vary from just basic termination to uh, if, if you have divorce or legal separation, death of an employee. Uh, just take a look at your COBRA resources, all the students out there that are getting ready, and make a nice table for yourself. The one twist in there is when we're talking about COBRA and there's uh, disability involved. 
you get that 18-month period plus you're entitled to another 11-month extension. So it's actually 29, 29. Okay. of yep. uh, continuation coverage. Yep. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, some more Cobra numbers. Who knows Who knows some more Cobra numbers out here? Uh, well, now I'm blanking because you uh. put us on the spot. But <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, another date to know is that the dates for Cobra election is different if you quit your job versus if you die and your spouse wants to continue yep. Cobra. Which Correct. the actual time frame I am blanking on. See, this is why flashcards are important, guys. Even I forget it. <laughs> I I know a hundred and two percent of what you need to know about Cobra. Just saying. Ah, sneaky. Just saying. <laughs> what what is what is the hundred and two percent number you're So to? so when one is on Cobra, um, the employer isn't paying for it. Uh, not even their share if they had been splitting it. So the insured person who wish, wishes to elect COBRA and pay the premiums on their own, that premium can be up to 102% of the uh, of the premium for the plan. And that 2% is, I guess, for administration. Yep. Yeah, 100% to cover the cost and then 2% to, you know, pay the paper pushers. So, but just goes to show you, um, COBRA, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, CFP board response times. There are a couple topics that are just pure date questions where you just really need to memorize how many days you have. And if you can, you know, memorize that, you know, how many days do you have in hospice care? You know, how many days before Medicare kicks in? You know, these these real key dates, if you can memorize those dates, you can get some free points on the exam. And that can really be a big difference for some students. Yeah, and I like the idea of recording them somewhere together. You know, a master sheet of, yeah. of dates or, or days. I actually made a cheat sheet when I was studying. And I actually broke it down by numbers because a lot of them share time frames. So a lot of them are 30 days. A lot of them are 60 days. Um, so basically I just made, I made like a big 60 and then on the back I wrote out, you know, every, every item that has a time frame of 60 days. And then I did the same, I like that. same for 30, you know, I made a big old 30 and then on the back I wrote out everything that has nice. a time frame of 30 days. And that, I like that approach. Yeah. And that way you just can play, you know, association games and just keep it straight in your head. You know what the time frame is for each, each individual item. I like it. That's a great. You could great auction method, that, Jerry. yeah, because oh. you could. Yeah, put yeah. that on eBay, like the uh, like the Mike Trout <laughs> rookie card. Exactly, exactly. I'll, <laughs> there I'll you sign go. It. I'll sign it too. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, well, I just that was good, guys. I just wanted to give a little something for our September test takers. This is the last podcast they're listening to before they sit for the exam, so I wanted to make it a good one for them. And uh, from there, let's take it away with uh, Mike, your conversation with Robin and Brendan. I'm, I'm really interested to hear, uh, you know, how it goes, because you guys have some really interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, it was um, it, it was fun to do that. And, and I like her story of how she got started, how she got interested in CFP um, as an assistant, as a sales assistant, and decided that she wanted to be in the business. And then her journey from there. And then, of course, Brendan and I got to dust off some old memories of starting out and she tolerated us very gracefully uh, uh for that period but <laughs> graciously i guess it would be um so anyway yeah give it a listen yeah let's uh take a listen to that right now all right 
Well, why don't we why don't we get started by just a, a, an introduction? Uh, I, I think people know Mike and I from from listening to the podcast, but maybe not really understanding our, our history. And, and certainly, no one's uh, heard from uh, Robin yet. So I think it would be good to have. Uh, a nice introduction as to, you know, where you've been, uh, where you're currently working, and in what stage uh, you're at. So why don't we uh, go ahead and follow the ladies first, uh, and and have Robin start with just, uh, you know, where you're currently working and and uh, your your history through the CFP curriculum. Yeah, thanks. Um, so currently, I am advisor with LPL Financial. Um, I work for a company called Jack Huff and Associates. It's me and another advisor. He's been in the business for 34 years, and so I'm really trying to follow his lead and start taking on my own clientele. Even though I'm just starting to take on clients, I have been in the business for the last 13 years under other LPL advisors um, doing a lot of admin stuff, and I was fortunate enough to be given the chance by Bryant University to get my my education portion of the CFP, which I I did and then I took the test and um, it's one of the best things that I've ever done. I feel like when I first started in the business uh, with a company years and years ago called First Investors, I was doing cold call sales right out of college, had no idea what I was doing and um, left, wasn't sure this was set out for me and decided to come back and join as an admin under another advisor. Took the time to get my licenses, my education, my designation, and really am ready to get going and feel like I know what I'm doing better now and have the confidence to do it. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. All right. Well, that sounds interesting. I think I have a few questions about that. Uh, and Mike, now, so before you got into the business, you were actually the lead singer of a liquid metal band. Is that correct? That's that's right. Yeah. Until <laughs> I started losing my hair, and it, it wasn't yet it wasn't yet cool to be shaving your yeah, head. Well, so you're a yeah, trendsetter as usual. Yeah, Mo okay. mohawks and male pa pattern baldness don't go together. You're saying? Well, that's what they told me. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's what the critics were saying. Everyone knows so Mike I, is that the calming voice on the on the podcast, but he he can really rage. That's right. <laughs> so, wh so wh what was your start, Mike? I know that you've you've been in the business for quite some time and in, in many different aspects of the business, but uh, you know, where did you start? Yeah, I'm. Um, um, began this summer my 40th year yeah. uh in the in the business and um was somewhat of a freak when i first started out because i actually i came into the business through the um primarily life insurance side uh of um the business and and studied it as part of my degree this was long before there were financial planning degrees or even minors um, but there were a number of insurance classes I could take, and I did, and I became really good friends with a professor who was a retired insurance agent uh, in a second career, and we got to be really great buddies, and he really encouraged me just to go straight into the field uh, right out of college, um, as opposed to some home office type position. So I got my licenses, um, all of my licenses, my senior year in college and uh, actually started going to an office for some training and 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 out on sales calls 
Um, but at that time, that was kind of rare for somebody to opt. I want to go directly into the life insurance business. Yeah. Um, it was usually wasn't the first stop, but that's that's what happened for me. So, so uh, you were right out of college. You you got into the business. That's right. Wow. Literally. Okay. Yeah. And Robin, yeah, you were the same. Literally. Yes. Yeah. Right out oh, of college. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, my my path is a little different. So I I, I was in. Uh, technology uh, in the mid and late 90s um, just because that's where the best jobs were and you know I loved the experience I had but this was certainly always something that I was drawn to Um, I majored I had a a double major in in college in computer information systems and and, uh, finance Um, and and ultimately this is where I wanted to end up but I had a college professor at the time who told me you definitely don't want to start in the business right out of college. It's a terrible mistake that you'll make. And, and so I, I pursued another opportunity. Um, and then I started in 2004 uh, with with Merrill Lynch in, in Providence. Um, and so I've been in the business now for, this is my 17th year. And it's it's amazing how quickly it goes by. It, it, most of the time, right? Sometimes like, like March of this year and 2008 and some other times, it, things go by really slowly. Uh, but in general, it, it, it does go by quickly. I agree. I, I have a question for Robin, though. Um, how many call? How many cold calls into your list were you when you had the, the revelation that maybe this wasn't for you? For me, it might have been 10. <laughs> That's stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. I probably cold called for a good month, I would say. Okay. I left there. I got my six and sixty-three beginning of January. I left probably mid February. Not I and I it was commission based only. I never got paid from that company. I left before any business actually went through. But I currently wow. have a client that still has a policy with them that I wrote. So wow, um, yeah. So I and, did and do so, some business, but yeah, the cold calling was not for me. And just to frame it up, what, what year was this, Robin? Two thousand and six. So tough. Yeah, that's that's. Right at the beginning of the of of when things were starting to get tapped out, and um, yeah, so tough time to start. Yeah, I, and I think it's always a tough time to start. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, and I was out of college, <laughs> yeah, and people were like, "Why? Yeah, why would I put money with you when I can go buy a house and do you know flip it and make ten times as much?" And yeah, yeah houses right never lose money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, interestingly, in in two thousand six, two thousand seven. Standard and Poor's, when they were doing their valuation models and, and, and expectations for uh, markets moving forward, uh, their model for real estate didn't even consider the fact that real estate could actually go down in value. It wasn't even a, a possibility in their model, which is crazy to me. Wow. So, um, it, Well, my, my insurance piece literally was the only job offer I got. Uh, this was 1981. Yep. And so we were in a recession that would go on into into eighty two. Yep. Nobody was getting a job uh, of those of us graduating, and I was interviewing with anybody and everybody, um, and had great grades and all that good stuff. It just wasn't there, 
And an insurance company said, well, I think you'd be good with us. And and that was at a time where we used to laugh, if you could fog a mirror, they'll hire you yep. uh, for for life insurance. And so that's what I did and um, you know, then went on to do that for a long time before branching out. And, and Mike, what did you study in school? Um, it was a, a, a business and marketing uh, major, and you concentrated in three areas. And mine was economics, marketing, yeah. and insurance. They had, yeah. I think, oh, fifteen hours of insurance class. Yeah. Okay. And then Robin, I immediately I, I took life and health and and, re- and securities registrations then too. So and and you now you you were able to get licensed prior to graduation. Yes, I wow. was. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, because I was technically working for the firm. Okay. Uh, and Robin, what were you studying? Uh, my major in college was economics. Oh, good. Great major. Okay. Yeah. And and so what drove you to, to, to be interested in, in those majors? Is this is is the, the financial advisory, is that something that is just something that's always been of interest of you, or is it something that you gravitated towards in college? Uh, yeah, I started at college as an electrical engineering major. Um, really? I wanted, yeah, uh, I wanted something where I'd have a good job and make good money. And I wasn't quite, you know, I knew engineering was a good career to go in and electrical made the most money. And so I was like, well, let's do it. I was great at math and science. And so I went into Colorado State as an electrical engineering major. I did my first year and got some great advice from a friend of mine who was in his third year. And he said, if you don't love this major, you better get out now because he was getting out after three years because he didn't care for it anymore. And he, that added another year of schooling on for him. So I was like, well, I'm not in love with this. I got to find something else. So um, I started taking more of the classes that I really liked and that, was economics, and I just and went was, all the way with that. Was econ domiciled in the in the School of Arts or the School of Sciences at your at your college? School of Arts. Yeah, I'm always interested mm-hmm. in that. Okay, uh, what about you, Mike? Is that is it just something you gravitated towards, or have you just loved it? Your because you do. I, I it's it's amazing how much you love this stuff. I mean, I, I think we're all pretty passionate about it, but you're, you're on a different level, I think, than the rest of us. So is, is this been a lifelong thing or did you develop it in school? Uh, it was really driven by that friendship. And, and I don't know that I ever loved the life insurance business, but I was good at it yep. and had had early good success. And, um, you know, and then you get to where it's like, gosh, I, I could never think about getting out of this. Um and I, you know, then I came to love teaching really is how it evolved. And I liked hiring and training and bringing people in to have my own agencies and such. Uh, but it was very transactional back then. You know, very few people were doing what we know as financial planning today. Uh, we had, uh, and even financial advisors were known as stockbrokers yeah. back then. Yep. And then you had insurance agents and you had bankers and we were all transactional. We prospected and sold uh, those products without really taking a holistic perspective with the client and financial planning. So that all came later in, in my career. But in the beginning, it was just it was strictly life insurance 
And then I developed an early passion for doing retirement plans for small and mid-sized businesses, mostly because I could run all of those appointments during the day. And the life insurance business back then was across the table at seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. So I uh, I loved getting into the daytime market of retirement plans. Yeah, and it's interesting. Transactional is is really how most of the business was run, where you know every step was taken without really consideration of the next step. Um, and and that's you know thankfully that's changed for the better. And a lot of the new rules yeah. that have come in kind of force you to really consider everything in totality. Uh, as opposed to just doing these isolated moves, which may or may not benefit the people in a long-term uh, time frame. Yeah. Well, how about you? Were you did Did you know this was what you wanted to do? Because your business is very significant now. Yeah. No, I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I was definitely going to law school. So this, the college I went to had a law school, and um, you had to declare. So I was. I don't remember who I was speaking to, um, but it was it was like the first week on campus, and they said, "Well, what do you want to major in?" And I said, "Pre-law." And they said, "Well, we don't have pre-law." Um, and I said, "Okay." Well, I looked at the the campus map, and there was a building directly across the street from my dorm room, and I said, "What's that building?" And they said, "Well, that's the business building." And I said, "Okay, I'll major in business." Uh, and the shock and the look, the, the the look of shock in the woman's face when I said that was that's really how you're going to pick your major. But again, I was so convinced that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and then so I, I started in finance. And the class that really spun it for me was I think my second year. I took a class called uh, Quantitative Business Analysis One, um, and I also had Macroeconomics uh, that semester. And those two classes really, but really the QBA, uh, so I really liked it. You know, it was very interesting to me, uh, and that that kind of changed my uh, my trajectory and, and and took and thank God took uh, law school off the table because a lot of the people I know who are lawyers are pretty miserable. So it's uh, it, it's definitely a fortunate thing that happened. Well, it's worked out for sure. Yeah, you've got a you've got a good practice. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's certainly not. Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of success uh, in this business is is part. You know, obviously it it comes down to preparation and, and kind of being in the right spots. But it really, you really require a lot of luck. And and I've benefited greatly in my career from from you know good mentors who have given me good advice. Uh, and and so it's been. You know, I, again, I've, I've been very lucky and very fortunate for the, uh, the, the people who've kind of intervened in my career. So with the start, so Robin, so you initially started with the cold calling and then, and then from there you decided that, well, maybe, maybe a different path is, is the right path for you. And, and is that when you got on the, uh, the more admin side? Yes. Yes, I found a husband and wife team that had been in the business with LPL for, oh, geez, by the time I joined, he joined in, in, in the 1981, so I joined them in 2007, so he'd been with them for a while, and um, they did more mostly 401k retirement plans, but then they also had, you know, individuals coming out of those retirement plans into private wealth and um, was with LPL Financial. And that's really where I focused my concentration, helping some of the participants in the 401k plan, but a lot of uh, admin for transferring assets out of 401k plans or from different broker dealers, uh, 
So I would handle everything from setting up the account paperwork to uh, account transfers to trading to um, really towards the end of my time with that firm, putting together financial plans. And, and how do you think, you know, given where you are now, that that admin experience, will, will that benefit you, you think, in your career? Oh, yeah, definitely okay. a lot. I how do, so? I work um, on the admin side. I work very closely with the client. And so my go-to has always been great service, helpful service, and really to make clients feel like I'm on your side. Let's work through this together. And so knowing what I know on the admin side and how to get things done and what needs to be done and how the client is thinking and feeling has helped me tremendously. Because um, really that's what I was there for is to be an advocate for the client. And so um, that's what I did. And that's how I plan to bring my experience into working with my own clients. So I have a question, Robin. I would guess that with your admin background, that those skills come in very handy. And I would I would assume that you are far more efficient um, and productive than a, than an average uh, than an average advisor, just because of those skills. Do you find you're drawing on them to stay organized and efficient? Yeah, uh, I believe I am. I've worked under three different advisors and so they've all had very different ways that they conducted their business um but i've worked under several advisors at one time and so yeah i've had to remain very organized and efficient and i'm not necessarily looking at one case at one time i might have you know 10 things to do for 10 different clients all at one time so I have to stay very organized and on top of things and take good notes um, in order to, yeah, be efficient and productive. So with that background, I, I think it'll really help me going forward with my practice. Yeah, I can say. So my, my partner, I have a partner in, in my practice, and um, she has she's also a certified financial planner. Um, but she started, we worked together for uh, eight years, which she was my, my client assistant. Um, and, and then when I had a, a, another partner who was going to be retiring, uh, it, it just made perfect sense to elevate her to, to partner. Um, because as you said, Robin, is you, you really are the one that talks to the client. You know exactly where the client's pain, are, uh, pain is um, and you know where you know, how to get things done operationally. And that's, that's really, you know, whenever you look at the statistics, clients don't leave planners and advisors because of performance, because they leave because my name's not right on the statement, or I asked for this three times and it didn't get done. So it's more like the tactical stuff that gets people upset uh, enough to, to look for someone else. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, that, that experience that you have as that admin uh, will be invaluable. I, I really think that people who start in that capacity um, have a, a, a much better chance of being very successful advisors uh, just because of that experience that they have. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. You know, plus, you, you, you've spent time talking to people about their money, and that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things to kind of overcome in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're really young yeah, starting yeah. out. Yeah, that just like, that confidence or credibility 
um, can be challenged sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, that's let, let's talk about that because because I, I think the worst question that I used to get in the very beginning is, well, how long have you been doing this for? You know, and when I would look at my watch and say, you know, roughly forty-five minutes, uh, it's not necessarily the comforting answer uh, that that the client or the prospect was looking to hear. Yep. I got some of that at 21. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And I was, again, this was my second career, you know, so it was, it was, I was, I think I was 30, 29 or 30 when I started. And, uh, you know, so, so I can't even imagine what it must have been like at 21 or 22 years old. Well, I, um, I did a couple of things uh, that I think helped a lot. One, I immediately, uh, the big designation for insurance folks uh, back then was CLU yep. and CHFC, yep. and I immediately enrolled in uh, in CLU. And so when I sensed, or if it was direct that they are challenging the age, I would show them the things I'm studying uh, in the CLU curriculum. And if I was feeling great resistance um, in a call. I would get through that call, but I would bring back with me someone of that age, um, at, you know, as as a a partner in that case. Yep. And that that put to bed a lot of it uh, as well. It just required me to come back, you know, get to a point where I could come back, and uh, and that worked. But it did come up, um, you know, just about every week somebody w- would challenge it. So with, with those designations that you had, Mike, what what what? possessed you to to pursue the CFP? Well, primarily as the second career, uh, knowing I wanted to move into teaching full time um, when I decided to not go any further with uh, private practice and sales management and and corporate teaching, because I traveled a lot teaching uh, back then as well. um, Then I knew I would need CFP to, to go fully into education. Okay. And Robin, what, what tempted you to, to pursue the CFP? Well, it definitely fell into the opportunity, so I was really thankful of that. And I had just had my first child, and so I really was at a turning point in my career, whether I was going to continue to do more in this path and start to break out of an admin role and you know, look to either start taking on my own clients or do something in compliance or work for a bigger broker dealer. I knew I needed more education. And so I was either going to go that way or I was going to completely leave the field and and, and really focus on a career not doing this. And I I wasn't sure which way to go. And then I had the opportunity to get the CFP and it just was was eye-opening and great. And I have really liked the way I feel the industry is starting to turn into holistic planning and not just a sales career um, because yeah. people do need help with their finances and they're not sure where to go, but they have all of these, there are all these pieces when it comes to planning that you can put together a package and put people's fears and concerns at ease. And so I like where the industry is turning so I really enjoyed pursuing my CFP designation. And and what drove you so so as an admin when you were sitting on that webinar? It, 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 did did you did you think that maybe if you got this you'd, you'd make the leap to financial advisor, or did you think well maybe it would just benefit me in my admin position? 
what was the what was the reason that you were even interested to to even sit and listen about the CFE program? Um, yeah, I definitely was planning on making a leap, and I knew it would open doors. Whether I decided yeah. to become a financial advisor or I decided to, um, I yeah, I honestly looked at going into compliance, at, you know, LPL or something like that. Um, yep. I just knew that people were going to start taking me more seriously and that I was going to know more and have confidence about what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because just the process, I've said to thousands of students, just going through this process for CFP, you will find yourself in conversations next year that you'd never have been in before. And it's just because you've been exposed to a certain topic or a strategy or opportunity. And it rings a bell when the conversation goes that way with a client, you're able to speak to it, maybe work completely through it or align the help that they, they do need. And that's so true. Even though some folks will say, why do I need this? I make incredible money right. uh, already. Uh, but, that you'll find later it is expanding things for you. Yeah, it, it's, it's quickly additive to it, especially if you're if you have an established practice. I mean, there's just things that you'll learn that you just didn't even know existed um, that you can immediately add to even if you don't use the marks, even if you never sit for the test, the stuff you'll learn uh, will definitely well, I didn't even know I could do this. And, and here's eight clients that I can do this with right now. And uh, it, it'll be immediately productive. Yeah, and I found them to be very uh, accepting, too, with, you know, I've been studying uh, this or that, and I learned something, and I immediately thought of you. Yeah. And I want to get together and, and share some share some new ways to do some things. Um, can we get together, you know, this week for a few minutes? And it became, uh, you know, easy to really expand the activity with clients just having something new to go through. Sounds like you I should be still on this side of the business, that. Mike. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I, I think that it's a it's a wonderful perspective to have, and I think that um, you know certainly clients like to hear that you're you're doing things to maintain your knowledge and and, and you're doing things to expand the the skill at which you're going to to deal with their money, and and so it never hurts to call and say, hey, listen, I was just reading about this, and I think that's a great way to put it, Mike. It's 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 perfect. Well, and it becomes a, um, you know, you get off a defense and it, and it can it can become an offensive uh, opportunity for one. And I, I do the same thing even today with folks. And I still am getting renewals from some accounts from way back, too, if you can believe that. Really? Uh, but the you can show them the curriculum of CFP and it's mind blowing. You know, the, the average client has no clue what's involved in CFP. Is it one of those weekend designations, you know, I, I, that there are so many of in, in, the, in the business? But it's impressive to see the details of what's being studied. And I like to look at those designations and things that we've learned is, does, does anyone that's competing with me on this case have these same credentials? Right. And make them hold them to that standard by educating the client what's gone on in achieving these marks, and, and that's what's really drove me to to the CFP. 
because uh, I, I quickly realized, I mean, I, so I came, I came into this business from an operations background. I had never sold anything to anybody uh, in my life. Um, and thankfully, because I'm not good at it, right? And, and so I quickly realized, and it was one of the big surprises, we'll get to some of the things that surprised us when we started, but it was one of the big surprises for me is, is I, I didn't, I, I guess I, I knew it was referred to as a sales position, but I didn't realize that it was, it was a sales position when I kind of committed to Merrill Lynch. Um, and I was terrible at it. And, and, and so I was terribly uncomfortable doing, and I made one cold call, uh, and it was to a friend of mine, and he to this day makes fun of me for it because it was that bad. And uh, I, I knew if I was going to survive in this business, I had to, I had to shift. I had to pivot to something else. And I decided that, uh, you know, being an expert in in something was going to be beneficial, and it may not, you know, may not lead down the path that I thought it was going to, but at least allow me to kind of have staying power in the business. And so I quickly uh, identified that the CFP was the right one for me to take, and. Um, you know, began began pursuing it in I think it was late two thousand five, and and took the test in two thousand six. Yeah, yeah, and I would think it's beneficial in your leadership role too, just to have that set that standard. Yeah, without question, without question. I and I think again, as Robin pointed out, the, the, this whole world is changing, right? So regulation, uh, best interest, or Reg BI is is certainly going to uh, require. Um, that you align your business with what we've always done as financial planners. And, and uh, so I think it gives us a distinct advantage and it's not gonna be as shocking for us uh, as it will be for, for a lot of people in, in terms of the way that the business needs to be run moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found just having the designation, people will look at your name. Just by having yeah. the designation, people will look me up. And so it's been great. And the CFP board, I've said this before in the podcast, it's the check that I never mind writing. I do feel like they do a lot to advocate for the profession. And I think that while clients, you know, Mike, I agree 100%, clients have no idea how comprehensive the material is, but they know it's robust, right? And they know it's not easy to get. And I attribute a lot of that to the efforts of public outreach from the CFP board. I think they're very good. I mean, again, I go back to that DJ commercial that they ran a few years ago and thought that, that was. I love oh, that it's commercial. Great. It's just, Robin, have you ever seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's. Wait, I think it's. DJ <laughs> commercial. I'm not familiar with this. No, you don't know the DJ commercial? Oh, I've you never, gotta go I've see never seen it. Yeah, you, yeah. just YouTube uh, CFP DJ <laughs> commercial. But basically, what they do is they, they, they find this guy on the beach and he's a DJ and he's got huge dreadlocks and a big beard and they shave them all down, put him in a suit and. and Put people in front of him 20 minutes later and they take his advice. They, they actually engage with him on their life savings and then he lets them know that he's a DJ. And it's just this is why you want to work oh, with a CFP. It's, yeah, a great it's like commercial. a hidden camera. Yes, yeah, I, camera I did see that. I think I, I think I saw that commercial before I even know, knew what a CFP was. It, it's, it's one of the best marketing pieces. It's, it's classic. It <laughs> yeah. really is great. It's great. So yeah, he he tell he tells them to uh, just like invest all their life savings in gold, and then plays like a video of him just you know playing a rave as a DJ. DJ, yeah. and then he starts yeah. then he starts dancing in the conference room. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> 
So, so I talked a little bit about, you know, I, I think that when people come into this business, I think that there's this conception of what this business is and, and um, you know, what would make you a successful financial advisor. And I found that there was a lot of things that just didn't line up with my expectations. Um, so I'm curious to hear from, from you, Robin and, and Mike, what maybe some of those surprises that you've seen, maybe not necessarily initially in your careers, but as your careers have kind of progressed. And certainly, Robin, I think you have a unique perspective because – you know, I think that it's it's like the whole doctor doctor nurse thing. Like the the doctors are the ones that get all the credit, but the nurses do all the work. And I, I think it's it's a similar affectation in um, uh, financial advisor. With the, the admins really do a lot of the work uh, and don't really necessarily get a lot of the compensation or a lot of the credit. And and so I'd be curious to see what your what your perception is on that. Yeah. Um, gosh. The things that I've seen, the <laughs> conundrums I've had to work around uh, just to get, you know, transferred or something done is clients have no idea, you know? Right. So some stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, even though we meet with them once a year, there's so much more work that actually goes into taking care of client accounts on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And so, um, yeah, it's just very, it's, it's never dull because there's always something new in the business or new with the situation um, that happens. Yeah, there's just on. And Mike, what about you? What, what are some of the surprises that you continue to have or have had in the industry? Well, good surprises. Um Early on, while while I would never say I was doing holistic financial planning in the beginning, I was doing incredibly comprehensive life insurance planning and retirement planning with folks. And um, it just was very gratifying because once they realized they really didn't know what I was talking about and I, you know, I had some great ideas for them and we could make their goals for retirement um, they really warmed up to all kinds of conversations, and that was a nice surprise. And the first time that someone ever called me uh, and said so and so, or uh, or my neighbor uh, had told me that you're really good at this, and and I'd like to get together uh, with you. So I just you know was on cloud nine the first time that ever happened, and then um, you know having people the call me and say we're working through some things. We want to know what you think about it before we do anything. The first time experiencing that was, uh, was, was amazing. Another good surprise was I was very, uh, goal oriented. And again, I was in transaction type of, of business, but I had to deal with myself. If, you know, if I made two new, uh, clients, two new sales in a week, then I play golf on Friday. And, I was pleasantly surprised at how often I could play golf. Well, that's good. Did that. you get any better? <laughs> no, yeah. but I still went. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely. So I, I was shocked when I when I came into the business. Again, I think we all have this conception as to what the business is, and and when when I came in, and and you know, people started saying, "Well, you know, this person or this person, they're great advisors, um, and very successful," and and it was it, it dawned on me that. It had nothing to do with the advice that they were giving, whether it was good or bad, right? It's just how productive they were. And that was shocking to me. 
Um, and I also remember, so I took, I, I, at Merrill, you, you came in um, and they gave you a set amount of time to, to uh, pass the Series 7 and the Series 66. Um, and then after you did that, you, you started. And, and uh, it took me a little while, but I, I finally got a, a couple of clients and they came to a point where I had to actually do something. I had to make a trade. Uh, and and I felt like, you know, I was stealing a car or something. It was it was amazing to me that they were going to let me do this without anyone paying any attention to what I was doing. I mean, at that point, I didn't fully realize all the compliance and the supervision that was entailed. But I, I thought someone should be, you know, making sure that I pushed the right button. Um, and it was it was scary for me. And, and uh, you know, just like anything else, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. But that was that was something that was also I thought for sure. Uh, there would be a little bit more. Uh, this is why why you buy things. This is why you sell things. This is how you do it. Uh, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of that for me. So I was just happy that I didn't blow anybody up in the first couple of years that I was in the business. <laughs> I I remember that when I was working trade desk at Fidelity, and uh, you know I would get heart palpitations the first couple times yeah. I would do trades because it's it's not your money; it's other people's money, right? Which <laughs> makes it worse. You know, you think maybe that would make it better, so at least it's not my money, right? But at the end of the day, right. you know, yeah, you you feel you feel like God, I, I can't believe they're letting me do this, and um, you know, so I I, I got to imagine that that's a common thing that a lot of people feel. Um. So, you know, one of the other things that I'm interested in, uh, Robin, is is what your perspective is as starting in this business, I, I guess as an advisor more specifically uh, as a woman and, and whether or not you think that that presents unique challenges and, and maybe what are some of those challenges? Um, I definitely see this as a male-dominated industry. Um, yep. It is very, it can be very apparent when you go to conferences and stuff. Uh, there's just a lot of, of, of men in the business. Um, but there are, and I have in the last year reached out to quite a few different female advisors um, that were getting more of them. Um, and the nice thing that I have found about women in this industry is that they are very supportive of each other. Um, yeah. So we, in in my experience, I don't, you know, like I've always been service heavy, and I feel like women generally in this business have been on the service side. Now we are starting to branch out and become advisors, and like you've said, uh, Brendan, that it, I, I think it really helps with dealing with clients because they know that they're on your side. And so um, being a woman in the service side, I think has been great. And then I've been able to find a few women that have been very helpful about starting my career, what even to do to start, you know, reaching out to clients, especially in today's um, environment. Um, they've been so helpful and so great. Um, and I think it is, going to be a great career for more women coming up. And I hope to give back to other people that are interested in um, pursuing this career. Well, that's great. And, and now do you have you have you experienced anything where anyone's skeptical of the advice that you're given or anyone's skeptical about your ability to to have that successful career because you're a woman? Or is that something that that isn't even on the table? 
think I've seen that recently. Um, and part of it, I think maybe because I've gained more confidence. Um, but definitely, uh, in my last firm, I would say, um, there were several times that there were, and granted they weren't my clients, but it was very apparent that the client wanted to hear, even if I said the same thing as a male uh, counterpart, that they wanted to hear it from him. Um, so that has been the case, but very few and far between. And, and so do you think Do you think that that's something that's diminishing as more women come into the business or is that something that's going to persist? Oh, I definitely think it's diminishing as more women come into the business. And... Um, having your licenses and designation helps not only your own confidence, but helps your client's confidence. So, um, and, and really, I think as a woman, you just need to, I find people take my advice when I'm confident about it more than if I'm not wishy, you know, if I'm wishy-washy, then I feel like that shows. But um, absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. You yeah. need to just, People, clients that come to you are asking not, they don't want choices. They want you to tell them what to do. And so if you come across right. confident, like this is, this is the plan. This is how we're going to do this. That is what the client wants. Yeah. Yeah. And they want to like you and they want to trust you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And as a woman, yeah. I'm, you know, generally more empathetic and, and, you know, listening. So I think those skills come across and help a great deal as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was, it was told to me early in my career that if, if you can be the smartest person in the room, but if people don't like you, they're not going to work with you. Right. So I think it's important yep. you, you, to, to have that empathy, to have that ability to connect uh, on a personal level with, with uh, your clients and prospects, I think makes, you know, it is just as important as what you know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a fun story about that too, because sometimes also you just get a jerk of a client no matter what you do. Yeah. When I, when I was working on the trade desk, it was like a particularly busy day. So my manager, who was, uh, you know, a woman was also fielding trade calls coming in just because the volume was so high. And she picks up the phone, gets, gets this client and just says, I want to talk to a male trader. Like, I don't want to do any trades with you. And she's like, all right, fine. I don't have time to deal with you. So she gave the call to me. I do I do the trade for him and then he gets upset about something out like some commission adjustment or something like that demands to talk to my manager so I'm like okay and I just sent him right back <laughs> to yep. the woman that he refused to speak with and now it's like now you have to talk to me there's right. there's nothing else it's and me you need or nothing. a favor from me yeah yeah, yeah. so so deal deal with it yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we had a we had a culture in our firms of a lot of male, female, working together jointly on, on cases. Um, I found it was very powerful to have both there uh, helping the client because it seemed like one, if it was a, a couple, one of them would seem to connect with one of us and the other with the other uh, person. It just was really powerful. And when we started doing um, more speaking engagements and uh, educational seminars and such. We always did a dual podium, uh, one male, uh, one female, and, how, and that led to a lot of leads. <laughs> how long ago was this, Mike? Uh, this the last 
the last seminar thing I would have done was probably uh, 20, 2008, 2007, yep. somewhere around there. It was a lot easier. Now there's a whole lot more regulation and rules uh, around uh, seminar kind of business. Right. But we it was a huge prospecting avenue in 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 my firms so now when you started uh, did, did you was was it the same thing where they were it was it was men and women working together or was it just mostly men because you started you know back in 81 i think it was a much different environment back then it it, it was um the biggest firm that i was in uh, uh there were a hundred of us and there was probably uh, 70 men and 30 women uh, even However, that's high i think the the 30 uh, this is in Chicago, um, were phenomenal. Uh, we, we had incredible, incredible women in our organizations that were just really sharp and really knew their stuff. Uh, and so we just had that culture of joint work. Yeah, I, I find that the, the women who were in this business in the 80s and 90s are just tougher than everyone else. I mean, then they had to be to survive. They just, they, then they're just... They're mentally tough. They know what they're doing, and uh, they're certainly not going to let people stand in their way. Um, and it's it's admirable for sure. And really, they they kind of paved the way uh, for that leap. I mean, I don't know how many people moved from from the admin side to the advisory side. Um, you know, I can't imagine that that was even a path that was available. Uh, that, but for men or women back back thirty years ago, but now it's something I think is uh, is done fairly regularly. Yeah, and the first CFPs in, in in our firm were women. Really? Yep they were they were very dedicated to education, and and that's how a lot of us started paying attention to it. Uh, and they took it way back when you did it in parts. Uh, you know, you could pass each section separately. You didn't have to do it all in one one weekend. Yeah, that, that that's right. And it was, you know, certainly, unfortunately, for the people that are going to be facing or are currently facing the CFP now, it was a lot easier to get it 30 years ago than it is today. Uh, they didn't even have the comprehensive test um, back then. Right. It was just, yeah, you had to complete the six courses and that was it. Um, but, you know, certainly that bar. And, and as I say, you know, and Robin, I, I'm sure I said this to you. After you pass that test, you want that bar to be as high as possible because you want to make sure that, you know, it's a relatively small room that you're in, right? Right. Yeah. All right. So I, I guess what we should do now is talk about, with all this experience that we've we've had separately, what advice would you give to people who are starting out today? I definitely believe in getting designations are tremendous to start off with just because it you are exposed to a lot of information um, and it brings confidence. Um, yeah, so if you're thinking about starting in this business, you need confidence and knowing what you're talking about and having some background in it. And even if it's just, you know, a touch of, oh, I heard something about taxes, that will come across to your clients and you'll at least be able to keep up with the conversation. I remember when I first started, there were so many acronyms in this business, you know, ETF, yeah. you know, yep. I sitting down on my first meeting at my first firm, these people were speaking a foreign language. I had no clue what they were talking about. I, and they all were just nodding in agreement and had this whole language and conversation that was way above my head. So 
reading, researching, and designations, I think, help tremendously when you first start in this business. You need to know what people are talking about because there's a lot to know, and it's constantly changing. So just keep up with your reading and, 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 and research. Back in back in the days in technology, we used to say it was it was a, all TLAs, three letter acronyms, right? There was there was an abbreviation or an acronym for everything, and it was it was it was like speaking a whole different language. Yeah, I was lost. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to survive. I have no clue what these people are talking about. But um, and then you forget that once you've been in the industry for a while, how. Um, easy, you know, we talk about what's going on in the industry and how people that are not in the industry don't realize what's going on. So if you're able to communicate to them and educate them and talk just normally to clients, it's a tremendous help. Yeah, that's but a, you need to know what it's you're a great point. About, I mean, it, absolutely. You know, because they need to be able to, you can give them the best plan in the world, but if they don't understand what you're saying, they're, they're never going to execute it. Right? right. So it's just, it's just going to get thrown in a draw and that's it. That's a, it's an excellent point. Yeah. And you can, you can tell when somebody doesn't understand, like it's very, usually very yeah. written on their yep. face. Just so, a look on their yeah, face. You yeah. need to yeah. then step back and realize, okay, I need to explain this a little bit differently because we're not connecting and people appreciate that. That's, why you're there yeah because they it is we we talk a lot on the behavioral stuff money's a very emotional thing and it's it's one of those things people just don't want to ask questions because they don't want to sound like they don't know what they're talking about and and so you see that look on their face but they'll never ask it right so if you don't offer it it, it's it's uh just going to be a lost cause so so uh but both excellent points right and being a woman yeah i i I understand like i see that in a husband and wife team when i sit down um, yep. the, the woman sometimes knows, sometimes will ask questions and sometimes doesn't. And you can really tell that, yep. you know, if they don't get it. So as a woman, I notice that and I need her to get it because statistics say that you as a woman are going to be around without that guy sitting next to you for probably at least the last five years of your life. You need to know what's going on. And so really that's, where I am going to take my practice and my um, my skills is that I want both of the parties to know what's going on. And as a woman, you really need to know because when he's not around, your situation changes greatly. So, yeah, and it's it's important because it, it, it's just just like anything else, you know, with 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 married couples or people who've been together for a long time, it's a divide and conquer type thing. And there's certain things that one is responsible for that the other one doesn't know anything about. And inevitably finances is one of those things. We're kind of aware of what happens, but that's something that he takes care of, or that's something that she takes care of. And uh, when, especially if somebody dies young and suddenly, it, it, it tends to be a major upheaval, even just like writing checks or where the checking account is, or, you know, where the, it's, so it's, it is important that both parties know what's going on. Yeah, I agree with Robin. Also, uh, the earlier you incorporate an educational aspect to your practice, the easier it is to maintain. It just becomes a habit. And you have that feeling after you complete one course, it becomes like, oh, what's next? And I would encourage one to do that throughout their career to keep being a student and um, not necessarily offer designations, but just continue to study uh, as part of your weekly uh, routine. 
and in getting started, become very adept at asking open-ended questions to, to draw that client and their spouse out instead of just one closed-in question after another. Tap into how they feel about things. What are you thinking? What's a good example of this or that? And I think that helps in those early years, getting comfortable uh, to, to engage them and, and, and get them both on, on board if that's how, how it's going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, that uh, if, you, if you look at yourself like, a, like almost like a marathon runner where you have to kind of keep that conditioning up or else you're going to start getting out of shape, it's important to maintain that, that level of knowledge. And, you know, the, one of the beauties of this business is that it changes a lot. And, and so I think it requires that, that we pay attention to what those changes are and, and understand whether or not it impacts our clients and what pivot we need to make as a result of that. Um, and I also think that it's important to have, you know, bo both to have mentors and to be a mentor. And, and uh, I, I think, again, I've benefited greatly in my career from, from just having people that are w willing to give me the time and, and, you know, give me some, some good advice. And um, I also think that you have to be smart enough or, or capable enough to understand whether or not the advice is good or bad advice. Uh, and then act on the good advice and kind of ignore the bad advice. But, uh, you know, as, as you start to establish yourself, I think it's important to, to be that mentor to other people, you know, to, to you know, pay it forward a little bit and, and uh, um, make sure that the people that are coming up are going to be, you know, willing of or, or worthy of, of, of being able to call you a colleague. And, and so I think it's, uh, you know, it's important to, 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 to give back as well. That's a good point. And I think the overwhelming majority of folks who have been in the business a long time uh, and have been successful in the business will tell you somewhere along the way in the beginning, there was someone that paid attention to them and was willing to, to kind of mentor them, um, whether it's right out of the gate or over those first two, three, four years, uh, those relationships in the firm are very important. I, I would agree. Yeah. I think so. I think that's right. what makes you successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to have success without it. Right. And I, I think that you're going to be successful based on your knowledge and your skills, but it's hard to see, you know, kind of where to put those things without someone kind of pointing it out, you know? And I, I think that, um, and that's true of every aspect of your career. I mean, even though, uh, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while, um, I, I certainly still benefit from, from people who have done it longer than me. And, and sometimes people who haven't done it as long as me that just have good ideas. And I, I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you can kind of put your ego down and, and listen to, to what people are saying and, and you never know what, you know, where it might lead you. Yep. And the earlier in the career that one can master the art of developing and cultivating referrals. Yeah and repeat business, the faster you'll see that escalation of the career. I would agree with that. Yep. It's been my saving grace because I, I again, I, I'll go back to that single cold call that I made, which was awful. Uh, I, again, if it weren't for, if it weren't for that exact thing, Mike, I, I don't think that I would, I would be, I wouldn't be part of this call today. Yeah. I don't think we spend enough time on it in the business uh, uh, those two simple things, you know, how to go about, developing referrals and how to go about practice management yep. for repeat business. I agree. All right. Well, we're up against the time here, so I'm going to give it one last pass to see Robin, anything else that you'd like to say or add? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. 
Thank you so much for having me. No, of course. Yeah, it was wonderful to have you. And, and uh, we're, we're so happy that, that, you know, we've been a little piece of, of your success and, and wish you, you know, all the best in the in the future as you as you build your practice. Uh, I'm sure at some point we'll all be, you know, having college students go work for Robin Miller Investments uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, hope that you just you just have a great career. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And um, th thanks for your time to join us today. Uh, I hope it was fun for you. And just know, um, you know, in your network of supporting women professionals in this business, if there's anything we could do for you at BIF, we would love to support you if you ever wanted a clinic on something, just any way we could inter interact to help you and your and, and your colleagues. We would love to for you to uh, to ask us about that. I will. I will keep that in mind. Thank you. All right. Well, Jerry, as always, thanks for kind of piecing this all together and yeah. making us sound like we know what we're doing. And uh, Mike, I'll look forward to, to the next one with you. Of course. Likewise. Thanks. Have a good and, day. Uh, Thank you, Robin. Yeah, thanks, Robin. For all our listeners, if you want more great Biff Bites action, uh, you can always check out all our back episodes at BiffBites.com, as well as our video series and articles and all the great stuff all of our uh, teachers and uh, editors put together here over at Boston Pseudo Finance. Finance.